seeing this letter uh, as a pertinent point or entry point for Easter uh, is, is so beautiful in the fact that it actually is Paul dealing with this particular church, the Corinthian church, um, and dealing with them at many different levels. Uh, and as it gets to the end of the letter here in chapter 15, you find that he's pretty much dealt with all of their problems uh, starting on from the mi- middle of the letter onward. It's just been a list of one problem after another. What's so relevant for us even this evening uh, as we think about what we are doing uh, to approach God through his word uh, is that Paul might have just saved the most important problem of all their problems for last, which is them completely misunderstanding the very resurrection of Christ. And misunderstanding that actually proves to be not just a minor error, but a fatal flaw. That if they do not have a living Christ, they don't have a living faith. And so for us uh, this evening to see that uh, is very important. So let's go to the Lord and ask for his help. Father God, Lord, we thank you so much for your love and your grace toward us. Father, we thank you that you've given us this great commandment, which truly is a difficult commandment that we should love one another as you have loved us. And this commandment, though sounding very similar to your old commandments, is actually a new commandment because you have loved us in such a sufficient, complete way in our Lord. So, Father, we thank you for this great gospel that though we would contemplate the fact of our lack of love, that it would be enough to weigh us down as feeling completely insufficient, but still lies in that the source of our strength is that it is your love, forgiving us of all of our transgressions and any uncomfort that we've ever had, any toil or trial that we've ever entered. is nothing compared to what you entered in for us. And so, Lord, we're actually strengthened by the fact that we know This new commandment rests on the promises of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord Jesus, we at this moment pause and we do nothing more than simply thank you. Do nothing more than simply thank you for giving your life for us. As this worship represents even for a moment, Lord, is that we earnestly desire to return our life to you. So Lord, please cleanse our minds and our hearts. Purify us. Give us a single vision. Lord, give us ears to hear your word, your gospel. Lord, help us to have a faith that is true, vibrant, living, as live as you are in this moment, Lord. For you are our hope and our salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. And so here we are in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 12. Have it up here on the screen for you. It says this. Paul's arguing with the Corinthians, and he says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, this problem he has with them is this. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? That's a big deal. When, when someone's writing a church saying, you don't believe in the resurrection, that's saying, you're in danger of not even being a church of Christ any longer. 
How can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And our faith is in vain. Your faith is in vain. We (coughs) are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not even been raised, then your faith is futile, it is vain, and you are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Perished, they are gone. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of most people to be pitied. The beautiful truth to that about the practicality of Christianity. It is practical. Oh, but it's much more. Much more than that. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign, that is, Jesus is reigning in this moment, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under him, meaning God, the Father. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. There's returning back to center. This whole plan of redemption will culminate in everything being the way it should. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized for the dead? For if the dead are not raised, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought wild beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. So if you got a letter from Paul, he's going to tell you probably what he thinks, I think. And he ends that, of course, by saying, the reason you're misunderstanding the resurrection, as in the case with all heresy, is because you just don't know God. If you knew God better, you'd know everything better because God is the source of all things. Every error in our thinking is actually always at root a theological problem. 
So the fact that they're messing up over here, misunderstanding the resurrection, means some of you don't even know who God is. And I say that to your shame. So let it not be, I hope, uh, this morning. Or, oop, I did it. Maybe I'll do it again. Let it not be this evening uh, that any of us would actually fall into that error. That we can say, no, I do know who my Lord is. And I do know that Jesus is alive. And I know why. The reality is this. This living faith we have in Jesus absolutely requires a living Christ. Other than that, it's just mere speculation. Uh, it is uh, thinking. It's philosophy. And it could be persuasive, but it is not necessarily true. Jesus must be alive. See, he says, most particularly, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they're perished. If it's not true that Jesus is alive, then they're gone. The word there is destroyed, not never to be uh, restored back to their life again. If Jesus is not alive, uh, that means if we hope in Christ now that we are most to be pitied, like a poor beggar on the side of a street, or fool who's believed some conspiracy theory, someone who thinks the world is flat. We should be pitied if Jesus Christ is not alive. Everything is vain if there is no foundation or footing in Jesus Christ. This is Paul's point. And he presses that and doesn't give up one inch. The vanity of this life is likened to a poor foundation. Jesus' words, when he spoke and preached in his Sermon on the Mount, he said particularly that it is nothing more than a man who hears my words and does them. is wise, for he takes his house, he builds it on a rock, that rock, when the wind comes, the storm, and the rain, and the wind does not fall, for it's built on the rock. But the vanity of our life, Jesus likens to hearing his words and not doing what he says, is building your house, your life, all upon the sand, so that when it is tested, and it will be tested, it will fall and crumble, and that is what Jesus calls a fool. Someone who has lived a vain life, for who has not heard the words of the Lord and done the words of the Lord. That is an image of vanity. But see, how does it relate to all this with Jesus Christ's resurrection? Everything he was doing that day when he washed his disciples' feet to prepare on Thursday for Friday, to resurrect on Sunday. There was a few, um, maybe months ago, maybe a year ago, I remember... Uh, hearing about this uh, news report. It uh, has to do with the land of the homes that were built uh, in New England, uh, most particularly uh, Massachusetts. And the news report essentially could mean uh, the fact that the land in New England is cursed. Um, all these houses, the news report was saying, are crumbling. Because there's a particular, unlike, fortunately, in our area, or even other parts of the country, there is uh, no chemical called uh, pyrotite, naturally occurring chemical in the land in New England, and really present a lot in Massachusetts. They went in with these quarries and started mining, and there are these channels in which this chemical runs through uh, the large parts of the state. And what happens is it broke out, and uh, this chemical was running through the soil, and the second it touches concrete, it starts to deteriorate all the foundation of these homes. Just naturally. It's not 
some type of ar- arbitrary or artificial type of chemical. It's just there in the land. And it goes right in through the footer of the house. Because if you don't know, houses actually do have feet. They're called footers. The very bottom of the whole house, the only part of the house that actually comes in immediate and direct contact with the soil. It's the footer, the very bottom. And so what was happening is this chemical was seeping through the concrete. And over the course of 5, 10, or 20 years, cracks all through people's foundations. So that you would drive down this road in a town and see these houses that are gorgeous and beautiful. And you would think very valuable. Only to know underneath, it's all made of glass. And the house is pretty much useless. And it's vanity. See, that's an image, see, for our lives. That's what Paul is getting at. If Jesus Christ is not risen from the grave, that is how this whole world really actually appears to us. It's an image for our lives. Hundreds of thousands of dollars invested in people's homes. Kitchens with granite countertops. Floors made of wooden cherry and oak. The best of the best. Windows and siding. All the roofing. It means nothing because underneath all of it, the foot, the foundation, is crumbling. You see, we are dying. We're dying. And everything above that foundation root of where our feet touch is vanity. The curse, the sin in the garden. Cursed be the ground because of you, he said to Adam. And it had to do particularly with Adam's feet, treading on all that dust. Cursed be the ground because of you, he said. By the sweat of your face you'll eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of the ground you were taken. This is vanity, for for dust you are from, and dust you will return. That vicious circularity is the definition of what vanity is. That you are from dust, you will return to dust. Our feet are fettered to the ground. Unlike God, we have to walk the surface of this earth. The earth that happens to be very much cursed. See, without modern science or anything, you could at least say, without causation and correlation, everyone who walks on the earth dies. Maybe it's the earth that's cursed. Everyone whose feet touch the soil end up actually being mortal. We're cursed. They come back to the dust from which we were. And it's most particularly our feet that are dirty. That is, the part of our body the lowest, the part of our body most intimately connected with the dust of death. The dirtiness of our feet is a dirtiness that is actually not just dusty. The dust, of course, from the very beginning of Scripture, images as the curse was extended to Adam, the dust of moral corruption. That is, a dust of sin and a dust of death. And so it was Thursday that Jesus said, I would like to wash all of your feet.
And he said particularly, what I'm doing right now, you won't understand. But someday you will. It says, before he was about to depart from this world and be with his father, that is, right before he's about to die, he does of all things, anything he could have done that evening at the meal. He's going to wash their feet. And having loved his own, it says, in the world, he loved them to the end. And he rose from the supper. He took out his outer garment. See, in Scripture, death is like shedding off your body. Paul says, I would rather be more clothed with a resurrection body. But here Jesus even sheds off his outer garment, lowers himself, humbles himself with a towel, tied around his waist, a towel very intimately associated with his body. You could just have a towel in your hand. But he takes the towel, attached to his very body, and starts getting so low that, see, you can wipe down here with your hand. But if it's attached to your waist, if you actually are associating this towel close to your own almost naked body, his outer garment is off at this point. And he lowers himself down, a servant of servants. And he gets so low that the the towel from his waist has to be around their feet and he wipes off their dirt, their dust, their filth. Lord, Peter said, do not wash my feet. Peter, what I'm doing you don't understand. But eventually, afterwards, you will understand. He says, no, it's below you. You're my leader. You're my rabbi. You're my teacher. You shouldn't be washing my feet. And therefore, there is the false pride that keeps everyone from the gospel. Oh, I fear God. Not enough to let him save me. Oh, God's so good. He's so great. He's so far. He's so distant from me. I don't even know him. And then Jesus says, no, if you won't let me come close, if you won't let me serve you, if you won't let me wash you, then you have no part with me. Now we understand, don't we? It was much more than washing feet. The solution of all this is a wonderful demonstration that after Jesus washed all their feet, he put his garments back on. He dignified himself again, took his rightful place. It says particularly at the center of the table, which is, of course, where he should be. These are his disciples. And he says this particularly, do you understand what I've done for you? If I washed your feet, And I am your Lord and teacher. Rightly you say, therefore, you must also wash one another's feet. By this, people will know if you're my disciples. This is the new commandment that I give to you. And so there's a certain type of service or death or self-sacrifice that comes to following Jesus. That if it were not for this, none of the gospel would make sense. 
And if you can say you understand the gospel, but you do not know what it's like to sacrifice and put yourself out there, to put yourself in a low place, to put yourself in a place you don't want to be for the sake of others, out of love. And of course, all of our motivations are always mixed with a little bit of sin and a little bit of saving grace in which we actually are doing things just because we love God and love people. And God sees all that. But the reality that your heart would be moved, that you would be a servant of servants and that you would like it. You would love it because it is a glorious thing now that the Lord of glory has done it. This is why Paul goes so far to explain. See, Jesus lowered himself much lower than that point in death. He sacrificed himself much more dearly than washing their feet in death. He cleansed his disciples much more deeply than with water, but with his death. So Paul says to the Corinthians, If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how could some of you possibly say there is no resurrection? There's a furiousness to what he's doing. He's angry in this letter. He's insulting at the end, but only for the sake of what? Waking them from their stupor. See, he refers to heresy or bad theology as being drunk and stupid. And so he's shocking them to say, You're being absolutely foolish because the vanity of life rests on the foothold, which is the very vanity of vanity, which is the vanity of death. Life itself actually isn't that bad. It's wonderful and glorious. It was the intention. But it's vain because below all of this life, the foundation, the footer, is death. How could you say you have any gospel at all? How could you say there is no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised from the dead. And so he reasons with them, and he points them to reason upward, and then he flips it and reasons downward. He reasons upward by saying, if it is true, that is, as a logical principle, that man cannot be raised from the dead, then, that is, down here, man, we know all these men around here can't be raised. When people, children learn logic, they learn, all men are mortal. Aristotle is a man. Therefore, Aristotle is mortal. It's like the first logical syllogism anyone ever learns when they're learning logic. And Paul says, good logic. The problem is the first premise is wrong. Not all men are mortal. Not all men are mortal. There is a man. His name is Jesus Christ. And he's not mortal. So your logic could be great. But it won't serve you if your theology is wrong. Jesus is alive. And so he says, therefore, if men cannot be raised, then Christ has not even been raised. Because Jesus Christ, in his love for you and I, is so intimately connected to your humanity that if it cannot be true of human nature in principle, therefore it cannot be true of his human nature because his human nature is an absolutely 100% normal human nature, absolutely necessary for you to ever have any hope of resurrection or life. So that if it isn't true in principle that men cannot be raised, then even the incarnate Son of God in human nature could not be raised. His humanity is that human. His weakness is that weak. When he was tired on the boat, he was that tired. But the reverse is this. The reasoning, the gospel, reasons downward. It reasons from heaven to earth. And so Paul goes on to say, well, if 
Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, then it is not possible, it is not permissible for you to say that there is no resurrection from the dead. That that, his truth, that the living Christ now is the determination of what is true down here. That our logic and our thinking and everything we do in reasoning through comes from what is true first in him and then we reason down to us. That therefore, if he is alive, then therefore there is, no matter what you say, and no matter how many times you've seen people die, there is a resurrection. There is a resurrection. It's like four legs on a table. Paul's going to give them four particular points of vanity. To say, see, everything you have in this life rests on four legs. And if Jesus Christ is not alive then your vanity truly is a vanity. Does anyone own a vanity? Maybe with four legs. They used to be called dressing tables, maybe. Very short, little narrow tables. Four legs on them. Very large mirror on top. Drawers. With all the combs and makeup and goose and potions. The thing you do to get ready in the morning. We call that a vanity. Why do we call it a vanity? Because everything we do on that table is vain. It is. You can't see your feet in that mirror, can you? You only see your face. But your feet are touched to the ground, which is actually only a leg's distance from your final end in the ground. So it is a vanity. Paul points out to say that there's four legs on this vanity. And he goes by and kicks each one of them. If Jesus Christ is not alive, then the gospel is vain. He says, if Christ is not raised, our preaching is vain and your faith is vain. The preaching is a dead preaching because we preach as though God has raised his son from the dead when in fact he has not raised his son from the dead. And we are charged with blaspheming and misrepresenting God. So the gospel is vain. And if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then your very faith is a dead faith. It is not a living faith. If Christ is not raised from the dead, you are still in your sins See, the ultimate truth, even before the resurrection, is the fact of moral condemnation. That every religion and every conscience and even the most far-gone secular atheist has to conclude that there is, there is this moral pressing of the mind to know that we are condemned in sin. So if there is no resurrection, the existential fact and the imperial fact of our own wickedness and moral corruption That's the gospel you have. That's it. The world is terrible and then you die. We're still in our sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished surely. The second leg in this table of vanity Corinthians are trying to prop up is that, well then if there's no resurrection from the dead, Paul says, then why are we being baptized for the dead? Which is literally the most controversial statement in all of Scripture. People have written so many books on this. What the heck is the baptism of the dead? And many have said it's either a ceremonial cleansing for dead people 
Uh, it's a metaphor, a baptism of type of, why are we suffering? It's a metaphor for suffering. Maybe the best answer, perhaps, is this. People pointed out that this baptism for the dead, the early church, as people were being converted, something like this. So you have a grandmother, sister, an uncle who came to Christ, and you're still worshiping Zeus. And they died. And out of love for them, you think through the gospel again. And because they died, and you want to be reunited with them in the hope of the Christian resurrection, that you yourself are convinced of the gospel and undergo baptism and become a Christian yourself. That is, there's a beauty to the image of the heart strings that connect us all. That, that aside from the truth of the gospel, there is this thing, this love in our hearts that says, but I would not want to be in a world that exists in which my family does not. I like my family. I like my children and their cute little faces and my wife and her lovely smile. That's a powerful impulse. That you would say that all of that is gone with your last breath? The reverse would be that it's so convincing, it's so powerful to know the resurrection, that even those who are pagans, as their families were being converted to Christ, would actually be baptized after their death to promise in the resurrection of Christ to see their loved ones, their Christian dead. See, why would Paul say, why are we even doing any of this? If there is no hope to be reunited. See, there must be a re family reunion that you can taste, that you can smell, that you can feel and hear. That is, there must be a resurrection in which it is not only just this life, but even more of this life and a better of this life. Not a shadowy underworld in which you have a dream right now of your lost aunt or uncle or grandmother. Do you ever have a dream of someone you knew you loved and they passed away? And you almost could hear their voice in the dream. And you saw their face and it's how you kind of remember it. If after this life that is your reunion, nothing more than a little shadowy dream, that is no hope. Why would we hope like that, Paul says. If there is no resurrection from the dead, he kicks the third leg from the table and says, then therefore, love Love, its very self, is vain. It's pointless. It's useless. Paul gave his whole life away for the gospel. Why then am I in danger every hour? Why then do I die daily? Why would I fight wild beasts in Ephesus? If Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead, there is no reason I should extend myself sacrificially for someone else. The reference to wild beasts in Ephesus is nothing more than how many first century Christians ended their days, which was being thrown into some arena to being eaten or fighting off beasts. And Paul is saying, why would I threaten myself with that kind of end? Why would I give myself to be sacrificed that way? Love makes no sense. If Jesus is not alive, he concludes with the fourth leg and kicks the whole table under to say, then let us live Vainly. If Jesus is not alive, and everything is the here and now, let us eat, let us drink, for tomorrow we die. He pushes them, says that's it. 
There is no reason to love. There is no reason to sacrifice. There is no reason to extend. There is no meaning to Jesus' admonition that our disciples should pick up the cross and follow, die to themselves, and live to Christ. If Jesus Christ has not died for you and is alive for you, why would you die for him so that you could live for him? Why would you die to your own will so you could live for his will? If he has not died for you, then he's alive for you. There's no meaning to it all. There's no purpose. There's no hope. There's no gospel. All this is just pure vanity. To sit in a mirror, all we are left to is to look in a mirror in our own vanity and reflect on our own reflection and our own self-pleasure. There's nothing. St. Augustine said he defines sin as being inwardly curbed on yourself. That he would say, sin is nothing more than that. Sin is nothing more than taking yourself and looking upon yourself and being about yourself and realizing that you're alive, therefore you want to eat, and therefore you want to drink, because it is you and what you have and what you need. Because there, if there is no vision of the resurrected Christ, if there is no vision for any of this meaning or going anywhere, any telos or end, then you are left with nothing but the inward curvature of the self, which is, of course, the malady of our culture. So selfish. We have selfies. That's how we take pictures. That's crazy. It's crazy. If this is it, then everything is vain. And of course, we're not surprised that we live with such vanity. The concluding beauty of it all, the concluding beauty of it all is that he says this actually is not the case. But he is alive. Jesus has washed away the dust of our death. It is a sure thing. He speaks of it almost as a past. When Jesus washed his feet, he said, you do not know what I have done for you. But yet that was still days, a day before he would go to the cross. It is determined that if Jesus is alive, then you must be alive. He has washed us, all of us, from the dust of death. The outer layer of our skin is nothing more than death, you know. It's all just dead skin scales. When you look, you sit down. Tomorrow, think, never think of a vanity the same way, I hope. If I accomplish anything this, this evening, that you would know. When you get up tomorrow, and you go to your bathroom sink, or if you have a vanity in your bedroom, and you sit in that mirror, you look at your face, and all you see is a film of dead skin that sloughs off and turns into dust. And if you don't dust your vanity, all of your deadness will just accumulate. <laughs> and we call it dust. You can't look at that and not see it the same way again. That that is, that is the vanity of our life. And why is it then so that Jesus would, of all the things, wipe his disciples' feet of dust? That intimate part of the body that is so closely connected to their final end. All the while forgetting that this lowest part of our body touches this dust every day. And Paul's conclusion then, therefore, 
is but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of all who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, so by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. And as in Adam all die, so in Christ all are made alive. And so the three steps that have to happen, have to happen, is that Christ is the first fruits and he has been raised. Therefore, he says, but each in its own order, then his coming and all those who are with him. And then the end, when he delivers his kingdom to his father. He has come to take everything. And he must reign now, you see, at this moment, until he has made every one of his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy of it all is to be death itself. That is, there is a curse that cannot touch him. There is a man with human feet who cannot be corrupted. Remember the house with the foundation and the chemicals seep through the footer and takes away the whole foundation and destroys the home. But you see, there is a foot that has been raised in glory. There is a foot which Jesus stands upon death itself and cannot be touched by it. And all those in him are alive for he stands on death itself. He has built his church upon this. Peter, you are this rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of death will not prevail. The very foundation of the kingdom of God is Sheol itself, the pit of death, and it cannot reach higher. For it is sealed by the resurrected body of Christ and all those who will be resurrected with him. This is inevitable. And on Sunday and Easter we'll see exactly what that means as Paul goes on to say, you are alive in Christ. He is the first fruits, and first fruits require more fruit. You will rise like him, never to die. And all the intuitions you have, all the love you have for your family, all the joy you have in life, it's because you were meant to have it in abundance, to never end. Dear Father God, Lord, we ask that you would give us this strength and the faith to understand that you are our life, that you must reign. You reign now, but you must reign until you put all your enemies under your feet. And the last enemy of all is death. So Lord, we ask that you would help us to die to ourselves, to die daily, so that in the death of Jesus Christ, the life of Christ may be manifest through us as we die to ourselves and live to you. Lord, rescue us from our own vanity. In Jesus' mighty name, we hold this prayer before you. Amen.